Imagine, you've just turned 16 years old, taking those first steps away from childhood, headed towards young adulthood, and suddenly the rug is ripped out from under your feet, and you spend the next 16 years sitting in prison for something you didn't do. Imagine, at twice the age you were when you went in, and after dragging yourself along a hard, tortuous path, you're finally shoved back out into the world, with no shackles, and told, hey, there's the road to freedom, start walking. Where do you head first? You have a long and precarious journey ahead of you. The road won't always be smooth, so it's only natural that you start with the basics, the familiar, mundane even. You fuel up before you really hit the road running. Uh, mussels with fraught diavolo sauce and the, uh, with Neapolitan ice cream. And the significance that it has uh, is that that was my first meal. When I was released, that was, we went to Italian food restaurant, and I hadn't had that in 16 years. And so I had that, and, uh, you know, it's normally served with uh, spaghetti, and I, I requested that they substitute the spaghetti for big ziti, uh, and they did. And I wanted to have a Neapolitan ice cream for, like, a, a dessert. And uh, it turned out the restaurant, so they sold strawberry, or they sold vanilla and chocolate either in combination. So I said, put it, put it all together, just make one. And it was great. In fact, the New York Times, uh, who was, uh, they, they took a picture of me with the, uh, eating the ice cream like this. So I uh, had <laughs> the spoon going, the ice cream going into my mouth and my attorney and the law student who assisted her on my case are in the picture too. Uh, so for that brief second, I got a feel for what it would be like to actually be, uh, famous. So that picture was posted, uh, was put in the New York Times. Food. It's probably the most fundamental thing that we associate emotionally with all our life experiences, good and bad. We just heard Jeffrey Deskovic, who was wrongly convicted of the 1989 rape and murder of a female classmate when he was a teenager, and was released in 2006, a month before his 33rd birthday. His official exoneration came as a nice birthday present six weeks later, but that first meal was the first material gift he gave to himself, a reminder of food he'd grown up with, maybe a way of reconnecting with that 16-year-old who'd been torn away for so long from what the rest of us take for granted. Deskovic says that when the judge told him the conviction had been overturned and that he was free to leave, he got ready to get up to leave the courtroom. He says, After I took a step, the enormity of the moment kind of hit me. I was just overcome. I mentally couldn't accept that this was over. So making a beeline for some good grub might sound like nothing to write home about. But for an exoneree, it's often what represents that first huge stride into normal life. It's exhilarating to be taking that first step, but it's bloody scary too. So it's hardly surprising that the first destination is for comfort food. Another exoneree, David McCallum, who spent 29 years in prison and who was released in 2014, went straight back to his mum's house for a cooked meal and said, The chicken she cooked tasted so different from the so-called chicken I had inside. It tasted like freedom. The other thing that we all attach to significant moments or meanings in our lives is music. For Jeffrey Deskovic, 
He was walking free for several years before he hit upon that song that summed up what was to be his attitude to life going forward after that first gush of unsteadiness as he rose to leave the courtroom. Absolutely, the song Last Day by uh, Nickelback. So it's kind of an inspirational song, and uh, the, gist, the gist of it uh, is to be the most that you can, get the most out of each day you possibly can, and don't be afraid to dream and go for it all. When did you discover that song? Uh, a few years, uh, a couple years ago. Oh, just recently? Yes, just recently, but uh, I, I love listening to it. I, I sing it in the shower a little bit, and uh, I, I try to live. I try to live it as much as I can. All right, so it has particular resonance for you. It has particular resonance for me. How Jeffrey got to be in prison in the first place is a whole other story that we talked about in an impromptu interview we did the morning after Night for Justice in Baltimore at the beginning of March. Night for Justice was a gala dinner for Adnan Syed, the now 34-year-old who it is also believed was wrongfully convicted as a teenager for the murder of a classmate, and for whom there's a worldwide movement to have exonerated too. Jeffrey Deskovic was a keynote speaker at the event. In this episode, we're going to focus on the path that Jeffrey took after he was exonerated and how his own experiences of early freedom inspired him to create a foundation to help other wrongfully convicted prisoners towards being released and eventual exoneration and to support them in those first precarious steps into freedom. The organization is named after me. It's called the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice. And our mission is to fight wrongful convictions through raising awareness, seeking changes in the law, uh, designed to prevent wrongful convictions, exonerating the, wrongful, exonerating the wrongfully convicted, helping exonerees reintegrate back into society. Five points that make us unique. What makes our organization unique is that, first of all, we take on both DNA and non-DNA cases, whereas most organizations in the field will only handle a DNA case. That's the case of, for the Innocence Project. That would be the Innocence Project and many of the similar named organizations. And, of course, DNA is only available in 5 to 12% of all serious felony cases. Secondly, we utilize parole as a stopgap measure. So if any of our clients come up for a parole, we... We write a letter to the parole board urging them to parole them. We outline all the primary and secondary reasons for believing in their innocence. And we ask the parole board not to hold their assertion of innocence against them because normally the parole board will deny parole and thereby extend what's already been an unjust prison stay if the applicant does not express remorse and take responsibility. Thirdly, we advocate policy positions that the other organizations privately agree with us on but will not voice. For example, a commission on prosecutor conduct, uh, removing, which would be an oversight board for the prosecutors. Another issue is removing prosecutorial immunity, which is a dastardly doctrine, which says that no matter how egregious the misconduct is, if a prosecutor commits it after an arrest has been made, then they're deemed to have done so as an advocate, and therefore they're immune from lawsuits. So that's that's, so that's another example. Fourthly, we... I have an apartment which we've uh, rented, a two-bedroom apartment, which serves as short-term housing for exonerees. The other organizations note short-term housing as a problem. They don't do anything about it directly. Fifthly, and this is perhaps most important, uh, we're the only organization started by somebody from my position that has an exonerative component to it. In our three and a half years of uh, existence, 
Uh, the highlights have included exonerating one person, uh, William Lopez. Uh, we persuaded the parole board to release three prisoners on actual innocence grounds. And we helped four exonerees reintegrate back into society, uh, including one person who, through the temporary housing we provided him, he was able to complete a bachelor's degree and open up a juice bar called Fresh Take, which I personally co-signed a, a lease for him because he didn't have credit. And another person, uh, Kareem Bellamy, who was uh, exonerated after 14 years, who I actually knew while I was in prison. Uh, so he was recently compensated, so we helped get him from point A to point B in his life because uh, the person he was staying with, he could not stay there anymore, and it was a um, bad environment. So those have been our highlights. It is perhaps being able to attain parole for its future exonerees without the inmate having to express remorse and still asserting their innocence that the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation is at its most innovative, daring, and perhaps even controversial. Parole is a stopgap measure. It's a way of, of getting of getting people freedom before they're exonerated. If their prison sentence minimum is up, yeah. they go to the parole right. board, which right. is allowed to give them discretionary release on supervision. But they're out of prison. So what we're saying is that if someone is in that situation, we want them to regain their freedom as soon as possible, if not sooner. So if we can get them out on released supervision, then that's better for them. We will still continue to try to exonerate them but uh, afterwards, but that is a very slow process. I mean, it, from investigation to the, the, the court system, which is notoriously slow, it's much better for someone to be out while that's than to begin. For example, one person that we did get out on, on parole, John Whitfield, uh, he's been home for three years now, and uh, we're close to bringing his case to court, but it's not yet. But imagine if we had not intervened for him, he would have been in prison for the last three years rather than home and on parole supervision. Now, what you said before, as we know, in most parole cases, you have to express remorse. Those people that you get out on parole as a stopgap measure, as you said, did they have to sort of concede something during their parole hearing? Ordinarily, they would be turned down if they didn't concede. So sometimes people weaken and they concede. But in these, what makes what we accomplished there so unique uh, is that they didn't have to concede anything. They asserted, in fact, they claimed innocence at their parole board. Brilliant. And instead of them normally being denied, as would usually yeah. happen, the board found our letters persuasive and they granted parole. But but that's not technically an exoneration. That's not an exoneration, no. But that's, that's, but that's what I'm saying. Huge, that's a, huge right, well, that's what I'm calling step. it a stopgap. Yes. It's a stopgap yes. measure. It's, we're not doing that that's, instead of exonerating yeah. them. That's just something yeah. in addition. No, that's a huge, but that's a huge step to get parole without having to show remorse for a crime that you didn't commit. And I'm a good example of what happens, uh, you know, when, the, when, uh, now when that type of intervention is not made. I finished. My sentence was 15 to life which mean I had to do the 15 years before I was eligible for discretionary release. So I did the 15 years, I went to the parole board, and instead of expressing remorse and taking responsibility, I stood on my innocence. I asserted my innocence at the parole board, uh, rather than taking responsibility and expressing remorse. I, w I was an ideal candidate for release because of my educational record, because of my disciplinary record. Uh, I was turned down for parole. And I had to do an additional year before I was exonerated. 
But had I not been exonerated, I would have had to do a second year. I would have went back to the parole board again. I would have been turned down again. There's a poignant um, YouTube video called The Innocent Prisoner's Dilemma, and it talks about the case of uh, Herbert Murray. Uh, who was uh, wrongfully convicted. They go over the facts of his case, and it's, he, it, there's a lot of red flags to say that he's innocent. And because he has cert- he, he, would, uh, he, he was ter- turned down for parole, I believe it was uh, seven, uh, seven times because he asserted his innocence. So that's another 14 years he, he, he did on top of the original 15 years. So we consider that, that aspect of us to be critical. Another uh, differentiating uh, factor is providing exonerees with short-term housing. And lastly, we're the only organization started by an exoneree uh, that has an exonerative component to it, meaning that, yes, there are a few modest nonprofit organizations in the country, uh, resurrection after exoneration being one of them. That does help exonerees reintegrate, and it was started by an exoneree, John Thompson but they do not have an exonerative component, meaning they're not trying to exonerate anybody. They're just helping you after the fact. So you you combine all the elements of the whole process, really, from getting somebody released, parole if need be, exonerated before or after, and rehabilitating them back into society. Along with the prevention, uh, the preventative aspect, which is the, you know, which is, you know, raising awareness and seeking uh, changes in, in the law. Uh, so let me flesh that out a little bit. So I regularly do television, radio, and print media interviews, uh, basically trading privacy in exchange for greater awareness of these issues with the hope that that raising of awareness, both on the elected officials as well as the general public, that this will help till the soil for changes to happen in the law which can prevent wrongful convictions. Uh, in terms of changes in the law, you know, there's two levels of that. So I meet with elected officials, both New York and Connecticut, as well as nas- in, in Washington, D.C., which that's uh, national. And I talk about the deficiency, the systemic deficiencies that lead to wrongful conviction, such as lack of videotaping interrogations, lack of preserving evidence, uh, accepting informant testimony without at least one piece of corroborative evidence, such as uh, using better more accurate methods when it comes to identification, uh, bad lawyering. So I discuss these things and I urge them to enact that uh, into law. So that's on a legislative level because you always want those changes to be codified in the law of the land so that it's not discretionary depending on who's in power at any given time. But while that's true, uh, since that is a long process, we have a what's called a voluntary compliance track in which I do presentations Let's speak about these reforms in front of groups of prosecutors, uh, judicial seminars, police academies, uh, as well as uh, the defense bar. So we try to reach out, and all the criminal justice professionals, so we reach out to those actually doing the uh, work in the criminal justice field, and we ask them to voluntarily adhere to these best practices. Now, you talked about the DNA and other kinds of um, exoneration, not based on DNA. Yes. Do you engage other professionals? How do you how do you work with other professionals in examining evidence, DNA or otherwise, in your work towards exonerations? Yeah, sure. So the um, you know the the foundation has we have in house personnel. So we've had like staff attorney, 
investigator, paralegal. Uh, we've had a few lawyers who've uh, volunteered to take on a few cases uh, pro, pro bono. So we review the uh, we review evidence and we make a decision. We have questionnaire which people fill out, uh, which tells they tell us about their case, and we ask for uh, the appeal briefs, both defense and prosecution, from the direct appeal, and we ask for the police reports. So the first step is we cross-reference the questionnaire with the appeal briefs because there's a factual section. So it's a quick way of comparing the answers they give and we ask them what was the evidence used against them. Compare that, cross-reference that to be sure they've told us the truth. Then, the, at once, once we're satisfied that that's the case, then there's a different level of analysis. We ask ourselves two questions. Number one, does the applicant have at least a colorable claim of innocence based on something objective? That analysis would involve looking at what was the evidence used against them, and it, does it contain red flags in that type of evidence as established by DNA-proven exonerations? So if the, if the answer is uh, yes, that they have a plausible claim of innocence, then the second question we ask ourselves is, is there a direction to go in which could theoretically lead us to uncover a sufficient amount of previously unknown evidence of innocence? enough that would allow us to go into court and make an actual innocence argument. So if the answer is no to either of those questions, we have to pass on the case. Sometimes the knot is tied so, so tight that there's no way to undo it, and so we have to make a hard choice to let, let it go. Those are the type of cases that trouble, uh, trouble us the most. What proportion of applicants would you say you turn down because you don't think they're very credible? I haven't actually crunched the numbers to give you a scientifically arrived that percentage. So I would say the quick and dirty, my estimation, I, I would say maybe 30, 35%. Oh, that's pretty high, yeah. But look, well, let's look at that differently, though. Sub subtract the 30 or 35% from 100. Yes, is the cup half full or half empty? Yes, yes, yeah, yes. I also want to say also that um, sometimes applicants waste our time uh, because um, they they're not they they're not claiming that they're innocent. That they're victims of a different type of injustice. For example, they'll say, "Well, I'm convicted of murder." I did the crime, but actually it should have been a manslaughter. They overcharged me because of these factors right here, or they, they over, they over sentenced me, or look, they gave me a 20 year prison sentence. I'm in here for, you know, for having a really small percentage of drugs. I was a drug user. Uh, look, they didn't give me a fair trial. They, they violated my rights here or there. They didn't go according to the law. So that's a different type of injustice. And, and I, I do believe those people have standing. That's, for a law firm, that's for we're, that's not us. That's though. a due, due process. That's a due issue. process issue. We're only actual innocence. We're, we only make legal arguments to the extent that we need to do so in order to advance a legal uh, advance an actual innocence claim. The work that you do with your foundation, helping exonerees. How does your own experience when you were released fuel the decisions you make with regard to the exonerees that you help? What did you learn from your own experience immediately after exoneration that now fuels what you do? Yeah, I, I know what it's like to be released with nothing and to, to have any assistance. I know what it's like to not have stable housing, to nearly go to a homeless shelter, to uh, barely be able to make uh, ends meet. I mean, uh, just having clothes and... and 
it, it, I really feel it, it I feel like it, it, I understand the psychological after effects and I know that the, it's most helpful to have people who are going to consistently have consistent contact with you rather than just a short brief interaction never to be heard from again. So, I mean, I empathize, uh, with them, with, uh, the people that I help afterwards because I've been in their, I've been in their shoes afterwards. So I, you know, when someone, when we exonerated Lopez, for example, I mean, drawing on my own experience, you know, we went to have a luncheon celeb- celebratory meal. Uh, I took him to go shopping, you know, so. Uh, yeah, so I mean, those were uh, both then and then, you know, as the seasons changed. And, you know, I kept regular contact with him and I remembered how lonely I was. And, you know, we, we formed a friendship. So I was, I was not, he was not just my client. He was, uh, he was, he was a friend of mine. So, uh, I, you know, I introduced him to other, other, other people. Um, and you do karaoke, don't you? Yes, so I, it's therapeutic. I, I do indeed. I yeah, you 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 do your homework very well, even on an expedited basis. Yeah, so I throw the social events because, um, you know, um, you know my my five years I was home before I received any compensation. It was uh, very turbulent, and one of the few bright spots was when you know the, a few people from the Innocence Project that I had um, maintained personal friendships with. They used to. Uh, do karaoke events and they would call me and you know those were the uh, those were the, that was the bright spot out of what was otherwise a really difficult month the months in between that so I continue that tradition so though those are the ways I look back and how how it uh, how, how it drives me In upcoming episodes, we'll be talking to Jeffrey Deskovic about his own wrongful conviction for rape and murder. We'll also be focusing on how adolescents are particularly vulnerable to being coerced into false confession, as he was. And we hope to be joined in that by other exonerees who were wrongfully convicted as teenagers. Join us next time on Routing Out. Routing Out.